If you're not there already, you can find your way in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. If you're visiting with us, we are working our way through the book of Leviticus, and we find ourselves on the tail end of chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 10 through 16. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 10 through 16, page 172 in the church Bible. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel. And the Israelite woman's sons and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. And the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now the mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody so that the command of Yahweh might be made clear to them. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, bring the one who has cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregations stone him, and you shall speak to the son, sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. This is God's holy, ancient word. Let's ask him for help. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we read this ancient passage, we are reminded that your name ought to be hallowed. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us humble hearts, teachable hearts that are ready to hear and receive what you have to say us in your word this morning. We pray that your word would do its work, both its converting and consecrating work. In Jesus' name, amen. John Murray was a hard-nosed Scottish Presbyterian professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia for many years. That school was birthed out of the liberal fundamentalist controversy of the early part of the 20th century. And uh, he was known for being a real tough professor. He fought in World War I, lost an eye. And uh, his students used to say of him that when he was lecturing, that you could see just a little bit of a glint of humor in his eyes if you looked just close enough. And you knew that it was his glass eye that had the humor in it. Well, 
Professor Murray wrote a book called Principles of Conduct. And in it, he has this quote about the fear of the Lord. He says that the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. Namely, that if you take the soul out of a person, you're left with somebody who's dead, right? If you take the fear of God out of true religion, then it's a dead religion. And the fear of God is something that really is shot through the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, you can trace the theme of the fear of God. Now, the rest of this morning, I'm going to give you three compelling reasons to fear God, to fear the Lord. But we need to talk a little bit about the fear of the Lord to set a a little bit of an understanding. When you look through the scriptures, sometimes the Bible will speak of fearing God or fearing the Lord in in what is a kind of uh, normal way in which we use the term fear, to be afraid, to be scared. It is a kind of fear of God that, that would be consistent with both believer and unbeliever, that namely there's sometimes you should be afraid of God. God... We saw in Leviticus chapter 10 when Nadab and Abihu were approaching God in the innermost part of the tabernacle, God struck them dead and it produced fear. Or we see also in the New Testament in in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lied, God struck them dead. And no doubt there was a fear that was struck in people's hearts. But then there's also a kind of fear that is sometimes, that first kind of fear is sometimes by theologians called a slavish fear, the fear of being scared. But then there is also a kind of fear of the Lord where it includes a kind of reverence and awe of God that that doesn't want to run away from God but wants to run to Him. And we know that there's this kind of fear that is shot through the Scripture and is obligated to the people of God because it's, it's likened to the kind of fear that a child is obligated to their parent. Uh, in fact, we saw this come up in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 3, when it says, every one of you shall fear his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh, your God. So here's this command to fear mom and dad. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean you, you know, run away from them. It doesn't mean that uh, you, you don't also want to draw near to them, but you have a healthy respect and reverence for them, an awe of them, a desire to submit to them. And so this is, this is the dominant kind of fear that is to be the response of God's people to this great God that we see revealed in the scriptures. Albert Moeller in his book called The Forgotten Fear, he says there's a legitimate sense in which the fear of God involves being afraid of God. That's the first kind of fear. Being gripped with terror and dread. Though this is not the dominant thought in scripture, it is there nonetheless. 
The second aspect of fear, which is peculiar to the true children of God, is the fear of veneration, honor, awe with which we regard our God. It is a fear that leads us not to run from Him, but to draw near to Him through Jesus Christ and gladly submit to Him in faith, love, and obedience. And it is that fear that, as Professor Murray says, is the soul of godliness. So, first reason, and well, well, let me set a little bit of the context here. We Last time in Leviticus 24, Leviticus 23 had to do with those broad general feasts that happen uh, 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 seven different times a year in ancient Israel. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, it begins to deal with some of the day-to-day intricacies of the tabernacle, namely making sure that there was the, the bread of presence sitting before right outside the curtain that went into the Holy of Holies, and also that the lampstand, uh, a, a kind of a remix of the tree of life, is lit there in the tabernacle, symbolizing that, that, that God is inviting his people to come to him through that proper means in the tabernacle. And so now... There seems to be almost an interruption in the text with this strange narrative. And, and it's a story in the book of Leviticus. And there's only two stories in the book of Leviticus. And both of them end up with people dead. Okay? That's just how the book of Leviticus is. Okay? So there's two narratives. And so this narrative comes up. And I, and I think, and then what is birthed out of that is more law. Which we know so much of Leviticus is law, regulations, Right? And so this narrative leads to law, and it's, it's law dealing with how to deal with sin in the camp, okay? It, there's kind of grades of holiness when you study the book of Leviticus. The, the most holy place is that center part of the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant where only the high priest goes in. Uh, once a year, and then it moves out to the holy place, and then there's the camp of Israel. Now at this point there it is literally a camp. I mean they they're they're in the desert, right? Eventually they'll be in the land uh, by the time you get to Joshua, but but it, it's a kind of camp where there's all these Israelites all together in these temporary dwellings out in the desert. And so here we have a situation arise about how to deal with sin in the camp and a specific sin. And so the first Reason to fear Yahweh is because of his holy name. Let's, let's pick up the story in verse 10. Now the son of an Israelite woman <coughs> whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel. So already we're, we encounter something that's different, okay? Here is a, evidently it would seem to be a young man who his mother is an Israelite, but his father is an Egyptian. So now, remember where we are at in the Bible. The Israelites, the Hebrews, had just spent some 430 years in Egypt, okay? And God brought them out of Egypt through those plagues. Now they're in the desert. And so it it would make sense that there would be some intermarrying, even though when we read 
these first five books of the Bible, especially the book of Genesis, there seems to be some disdain in Genesis and the book of Exodus that the, the Egyptians had for the Hebrews. You know, these are the, the sheep, uh, you know, the shepherds. They, they were, they, there was, there was a, definitely a separation, right? They lived in the land of Goshen. But there would have also been some intermingling and even in this case an intermarrying an intermarrying of some of the Hebrews with Egyptians now I I think this is brought up in the text because this is a a kind of a unique situation where there might have been some temptation to think well you know his dad's Egyptian what can we expect you know he doesn't fear Yahweh like the rest of us what happens with this man who's now described, his parents are described in a Hebrew, Israelite mother, an Egyptian father. Pick it up in verse 10. And the Israelite's woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. A fight breaks out. Okay? This word struggle, it's used some five times in the Old Testament, it, it, almost, it always means a violent, physical altercation. Fist flying, grappling, wrestling, maybe bloody noses. We don't know all the details, but here's a fight that breaks out between this man who has an Egyptian father, an Israelite mother, and another man who evidently has two Israelite parents, a, a father and mother, both Israelite. And you can imagine as most fights on the playground, when that happens, you know, what happens? A a crowd gathers, right? There's maybe even a picking of sides, cheering on one person versus another. In the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the fight, and and this often happens when guys fight, you know, when guys fight, there's a lot of trash talking, You know, there's a lot of jawing back and forth. It's like a show. When girls fight, it's all business, okay? You know, they're grabbing, pulling hair, you know, just, it's, yeah. They're there because they want to do damage. They're not trying to put on a show, okay? But the guys, evidently, and you can imagine this, they're probably jawing back and forth. In verse 11, It says, and the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So in the midst of the conflict, the anger, this half-Israelite man, he blasphemes the name. He curses. He, He evidently says something uh, perhaps he, he has adopted the, the religion of his father, you know, which was filled with all the, you know, the, the pantheon of Egyptian gods. We, we talked about that in, in some teachings in the past where even the different plagues were making mockeries out of all these different Egyptian deities. And this Egyptian, this half-Egyptian, half-Israelite mocks the God of Israel. He, he blasphemes the God of Israel. And they're not sure, evidently, what to do with this situation. And so in verse 11 says, So they brought him 
to Moses. And then some more family information is given at the end of verse 11. Now his mother's name was Shelomith and the, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. It is interesting that this man's name is not mentioned. And as is often the case in Scripture, it's, it's, he winds up nameless. His mom is mentioned. The tribe from which his mom is mentioned, but his name goes into oblivion. Now, not long before this episode, this fight, God had spoken through Moses and given some law in the book of Exodus related to this. In fact, you may be familiar with one of them. Some of you, I know, Young people especially have memorized Exodus chapter 20. And the third commandment says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we see in that that Decalogue, those ten commandments, one commandment specifically dealing with the way you use your lips in relationship to the God of Israel. And so... Again, the Hebrews, the Israelites would have known this is, this is a big deal. You don't speak lightly of the true and living God. You don't utter His name upon your lips in a way that is light, empty. But then also in Exodus twenty-two, twenty-eight, it says, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. So God, through Moses, has already given some specific instructions about the seriousness of the criminal activity of either speaking of God in a light way or transgressing in such a way that you would curse God. And so they knew it was serious deal, but they they weren't exactly sure the criminal implications, what the punishment would be for such criminal activity. Nor as well, this is a kind of specific case situation where this, does this apply to only Israelites or, or can, does this also apply to someone who is half Israelite? Also later on in the Torah and the Pentateuch and Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 58 and 59, it says... If you are not careful to do all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this glorious and fearsome name, Yahweh your God, then Yahweh will bring wondrous plagues on you and plagues on those who are your seed, even great and enduring plagues and miserable and enduring sicknesses. And so... If you're familiar with that section of Deuteronomy, this is a section where there's these covenantal curses and covenantal blessings. And so God is saying corporately, if you don't fear the name of Yahweh and you allow a kind of disregard of the third commandment and even cursing of Yahweh's name take place in your midst, I will ultimately vomit you out of the land. 
And so we see here in this specific situation, God is, is going to give specific directives for when it does come about. Now, again, it's, it's hard to know exactly what this cursing, this blasphemy would have been. But there, there is one example that comes up later on in the Old Testament of a situation which a man is described as cursing a superior. You might be familiar with it. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel 16 is when, uh, you remember, Absalom, one of David's sons, sets up a coup to try to take over the government and uh, is, is at least initially somewhat successful in driving David out of Jerusalem. And there's this sobering scene in which David is leaving Jerusalem, the capital city, and, uh, and he's being mocked and cursed and blasphemed. It's in 2 Samuel 16, 7. It says, And thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed and vile fellow! Yahweh has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. So here's this punk Shimei, jawing at David, mocking him, as he's being dethroned. And if I'm getting the story correct, I think this is at the point at which Abishai is saying, you know, David, can I take his head off? David, can I take his head off? Those sons of Azariah were interesting guys. And so Shimei here is, it's the same kind of language here of cursing. He's cursing David. And so again, back to, back to Leviticus chapter 24, we can imagine something of what this half-Israelite, half-Egyptian man is doing. He's cursing Yahweh. He's mocking Him. He's speaking ill of Him. And this is a, a kind of public setting as people are gathered watching this fight break out. Verse 12, back to Leviticus 24. And they put him in custody so that the command of Yahweh might be made clear to them. So, so, so the narrative kind of pauses here. As this man is apprehended, he's taken into custody. A, a, a phrase that was also used in the, the, the narrative with Joseph and his brothers, uh, one of his brothers being taken into custody, a kind of temporary holding cell, awaiting a judicial judgment. And again, there, there's a kind of drama here. This is something serious that has broken out in the midst of this conflict where this man is cursing Yahweh, the true and living God, and everybody in shock is saying, what do we do in this situation? And this man is apprehended, and now they're waiting to hear from Yahweh. And remember, Moses is the prophet of Yahweh. He is the mouthpiece of Yahweh to speak the words of Yahweh to the people of God. So out comes the verdict 
in verse 13. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. And you can just imagine the hush that went over the crowd listening in on this verdict, eagerly listening to hear what the voice of Yahweh was going to say in relationship to the circumstance of this man blaspheming and cursing Yahweh. He's to be taken outside of the camp. Remember, we we saw this idea come up earlier on in the book of Leviticus and even the, the message several weeks ago on Resurrection Sunday with the lepers, right? In uh, Leviticus chapter 14, there was, uh, when, when one was declared unclean and to have leprosy, they had to go outside the camp. They couldn't be inside the camp. The camp had to be clean. Not necessarily holy and in going into the, the tabernacle, but it had to be clean. And so there was a kind of uncleanness, not only unholiness, but uncleanness with this man who had blasphemed and he had to be taken out so that justice could be served. And then if you drop your eyes down to verse 23 of the same chapter at the end of, the, this, uh, of chapter 24, in verse 23 it says, Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, And they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp, and they stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And so, this man is executed. He's executed through this really gruesome method by which large stones would be thrown to try to kill him, and then piles of stones would be placed on top of him. And so we're confronted with this reality of capital punishment. Capital punishment for unlawful words that are used against God and and here there is a a kind of due process that takes place here when we read Deuteronomy chapter seventeen verse six it says on the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses he who he who is to die is to be put to death and he shall not be put to death on the mouth of one witness the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so it would have been those who heard these words who were to be involved in the stoning. They served as witnesses. And again, the due process, so that it couldn't be just one witnesses. Oh, oh, I heard him say something bad against Yahweh. No, there had to be at least two or three witnesses to confirm that indeed 
God's standard had been violated. And so what do, what do we learn from this? We, we, we gather that the name of Yahweh is to be regarded as holy. That God is not to be spoken of in an ill way. That we are to speak when we're speaking of the true and living God to speak truthfully and accurately of how he has revealed himself and not to portray him in a poor light. For our ears in 2023, it certainly initially comes across as a pretty harsh judgment, pretty severe. And and of course, we are not a theocracy like ancient Israel. We live in a constitutional republic, United States of America, And so we don't implement these laws in our society. But nonetheless, there is transcendent truth here. And and just in case you think, well, well, this is, you know, this, while while the punishment might have been for a specific time, but, but the regarding of God's name as holy is something that's for New Testament Christians as well. I mentioned it in the Opening prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first request that Jesus instructs his disciples to pray in this very common prayer that is probably uttered millions of, to- millions of times each Sunday morning was to pray that God's name would be hallowed or set apart or regarded as holy. And so this, to be sure, is something for us to think about. The severity might initially sound harsh, but consider with me for a moment. God is the creator. God is the one who crafted inside his mother's womb, his Israelite mother's womb, this man's tongue. This man's tongue was a gift from Yahweh himself. And this man dared to use this tongue to utter blasphemies and curses against the God who gave him that tongue. God in in this man's mother's womb knitted together this man's vocal cords and the brain that inhabited his skull. And these were gifts from Yahweh himself. And this man chose to use his brain and his vocal cords to curse the very God who gave him life. Acts 17, 24, the Apostle Paul speaks to those pagan Athenians, the God who made the world and everything in it. 
He does not dwell in temples made by human hands, and He is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. For He Himself gives to all men life and breath and all things. And when man dares to take the gifts of God and to hurl insult and abuse against this God, God Himself in heaven hears. This man was breathing God's air. It was God's air that ran through his vocal cords to utter those blasphemies. And so God rendered a judgment. This man was to die. And also the standard. It was indeed a severe crime. And, and, and by the way, we... The severity of a crime is related to the dignity of the person sinned against. We've talked about this before. I've stolen Jonathan Edwards' illustration in regards to this. But, you know, if if a, a child slaps their sibling, it's one thing. If a child slaps their dad, it's another thing. If a child slaps a police officer, it's another thing. To physically assault the President of the United States may land you in Guantanamo Bay, right? So, so there's an increasing punishment related to the dignity of the, the, the person sinned against. And it is the God of the universe who this sin was against. But also the standard. Remember way back in the first book of the Bible, this first volume of the Pentateuch, God said to Adam and Eve as he placed them in the garden, God said to the man, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. There was a death penalty laid out for rebellion against the Creator. And we even see this in the New Testament in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. What we earn because of our cosmic rebellions against the creator of the universe is death. And so we look at a situation like this and we see a capital crime for speaking against the Lord. It's no wonder that God doesn't strike us all dead. That's, you know, it says, the late R.C. Sproul said, you know, we sing amazing grace, but really we get amazed by his justice, right? We should sing amazing justice because we get shocked by passages like this because we're, and, and Sproul suggests the reason is because we're so used to grace that we get shocked when we see justice. But that's what's taking place here. God's name. So, let's bring this to our level. Fear God because God's name is holy. God's name is to be set apart. So, so it's worth us taking inventory of our own lives as, as the law of God is shed upon our hearts and as a spotlight 
How well do you do in speaking about this great God who is? Do you take his name lightly? Do you, does he become the butt of your jokes? I mean, think about it for a moment. Those of you who work in the workplace, you know, people may jaw about their supervisor, their foreman, their boss, the owner of the company. But if you know that supervisor is right outside the door, you don't say anything bad about them. Well, you may be one of those people who say, well, I I just tell them what I think. And that's why you're unemployed. (laughs) But think about it. The God of the universe hears every conversation. Every word that's spoken. And so we need to take seriously how we speak about the true and living God, to make sure that we're speaking truly and rightly about Him. And certainly that we're not cursing Him or blaspheming Him. And this is one of the reasons why we we take seriously about what we believe, because we want to speak accurately and believe accurately about who God is. We don't want to speak, we want, don't want to attribute things to him that are wrong, that are evil. I mean, you wouldn't like that about yourself, would you? If you heard somebody was saying all these things that are untrue about you, you would be highly offended. So my friend, fear Yahweh because of his holy name. But secondly, fear Yahweh because of his holy standard. Notice Verse 17, this brings the occasion for God through Moses to reveal the standards of God's holy justice, a a standard that really is applied throughout all the Mosaic case law and the apodictic law and and, and really in in many ways is our our principles of justice in a civilized society when, when it's done properly. Verse 17, if a man strikes down the life of any human being, he shall, shall surely be put to death. And the one who strikes down the life of an animal shall make restitution for it, life for life. So what we see here in verse 17 and 18 already is, is a distinction that's being made. A distinction between human life and animal life. A distinction that, can I suggest to you, is being blurred in our day and age? There seems to be a lot more concern about animal life than there is about human life these days. But here, there is, there is law being given here, life for life, with, when, when it comes to an animal. Verse 19, if a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. 
Thus the one who strikes down an animal shall make restitution for it, but the one who strikes down a man shall surely be put to death. There shall be one standard of judgment for you. It shall be for the sojourner (coughs) as well as the native, for I am Yahweh your God. What's going on here is that God, through Moses, is saying when there is destruction of property or stealing of property, there is this principle of fracture for fracture, tooth for tooth, life for life. And and it's, we learned some Latin earlier, Adam was sharing Latin, uh, Genesis 1-1 in Latin, but there's this principle in Latin, lex talionis, which is basically the law of remuneration or restitution. The idea here is not, you know, if you, you know, punch your neighbor in the eye and he gets a black eye, he gets to punch you in your eye. No, it's the idea that there is proper consequences appropriate consequences for each crime. And if it's murder, the appropriate consequence is for that person's life to be taken. It is a capital crime. But if it's the stealing of your neighbor's sheep, then restitution. You need to pay for that sheep. And in in certain forms of Mosaic case law, it was three times as much, you know, as a deterrent to make sure you don't do that again and steal your neighbor's sheep. And then notice in verse 22, there is to be equal application of the law. Equal application. It's not based upon your DNA, your skin color, whether you are a sojourner in the land or a native. There was to be proper application of the law. Now, this, these verses here, are probably one of the most popular verses in the Bible, right? You know, sometimes people have it, you know, tattooed on their back, you know, life for life, tooth for tooth, fracture for fracture, you know, and there might even be scales of justice tattooed on their back. You know, it might be right next to Matthew chapter 7 is the most quoted verse of the Bible, you know, judge not lest you be judged, you know, all the while while they're judging you. Um, And so this is one of those verses that's commonly misunderstood. And guess what? It was misunderstood in Jesus' day as well. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees evidently had taken this life for life, fracture for fracture, principle from Leviticus chapter 24 and they were applying it to their personal relationships which can I suggest to you never goes well you know imagine your wife instructs you to make sure you put the toilet seat down and you fail in this regard And the next time you're sitting down for a meal, 
You're about to sit down. She kicks the chair out from underneath you and you fall to the floor. And she says, how's it feel to have the seat taken out from underneath you? That goes real well in our human relationships, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. It was never given as a principle for how you relate to one another. Somebody crosses you, you cross them back. No, 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 no. This was to be given in the law courts. This was how justice was implemented. And by the way, our current day law courts could learn something from this. To learn about equitable justice. To learn about restitution. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, I I said that this was misunderstood in his day, and let me prove it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, one of the most famous sermons in all the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 38, says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek Turn to him the other also, and if anyone wants to sue you and take, take your tunic, let him have your garment also, and whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. What Jesus, Jesus is saying here, he's, he's, not, he's not dismissing Leviticus chapter 24 in saying, no, that doesn't, uh, that, that, that's nonsense. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, basically, you've been misapplying this verse. When it comes to personal relationships, there's to be a non-retaliatory approach. Let the law courts deal with eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Let them implement justice. Your job is to be kind to other people. It's really the same principle that the Apostle Paul laid out in Romans chapter 12. When he says, never repay evil for evil, but instead leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The same principle. In other words, don't take justice into your own heads. You are not to be the distributor of justice. And isn't it interesting that Romans 13 comes right after Romans chapter 12? Because Romans 13 is about the government, the civil government. And how they do not wield the sword in vain. That one of God's methods to bring about a measure of justice on earth are the civil courts and law enforcement. And so this actually frees believers to be kind even to their enemies because they don't have to worry about justice. Because they can leave justice in the hands of the the courts. And if that doesn't work, there's a God in heaven who sees it. A God of perfect justice. A God of perfect justice who again, by the end of this story, this man is buried under a pile of rubble. 
the French reformer of Geneva. Calvin says, For to begin with, the pious mind does not dream up for itself any God it pleases, but contemplates the one and only true God. (laughs) And it does not attach to Him whatever it pleases, but is content to hold Him to be as He manifests Himself. Furthermore, the mind always exercises the utmost diligence and care not to wander astray or rashly or boldly to go beyond His will because it sees Him to be a righteous judge armed with the severity to punish wickedness. It ever holds His judgment seat before its gaze and through fear of Him restrains itself from provoking His anger. Besides this, Mind restrains itself from sinning, not out of dread of punishment alone, but because it loves and reveres God as Father, it worships and adores Him as Lord. Friends, because God is a God of holy justice, He is to be feared. And again, by the time we get to the progress of revelation in the New Testament, it's not only physical, physical death for certain crimes, it's eternal death. I quoted to you Romans 6.23. It's not, Romans 6.23 is not talking about physical death. For the wages of sin is death. And I know it's not talking about physical death because of the next phrase, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle John speaks of, in Revelation of the second death which is being cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever. That's what we merit because of our cosmic rebellions against the king of the universe. It is interesting how so often we rail against the God of justice who would sentence people to hell. But the human heart, as we are made in God's image, longs for justice. I'll never forget years ago, dating myself, being in the movie theater watching Gladiator. And the bad guy in the movie gets killed by Russell Crowe's character and the whole movie theater erupting in applause. I'd never seen anything like it. And I thought, what's going on here? See, each and every person there, as this character was built up as this evil villain, when he got what he deserved, justice was served, and the human heart cheered. Whether believer or unbeliever. The problem is we just don't want justice for ourselves. Those people over there, but not for us. But the reality is, is that God in the gospel deals justly with our sins. And that, that leads me to the next point. Fear Yahweh not only because of his holy name, his holy standard 
of justice, but thirdly, his holy substitute. Did you notice this interesting thing that takes place in verse 12 through 14? And they put him in custody so that the command of Yahweh might be made clear to them. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, bring the one who cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. Again, I mentioned already, notice him being taken outside the camp. But also, notice secondly, the laying on of hands. This isn't the only time the laying on of hands happens in the book of Leviticus, right? In fact, in the earliest regulations of the sacrifice of the whole burnt offering, the ascension offering in chapter 1, there was to be a laying on of hand of that animal where the, the Israelite who came before God and realizing his own sin, confessed his sin, brought this animal and he brought it before the altar and the priest and he laid his hand on the head of that animal as a picture of the transference of the guilt, the individual's guilt to that animal and that animal was then killed and butchered on the altar. And with that particular offering, all of it was consumed. But it also happens in chapter 16 with this grand ritual that takes place with the casting of the lots between the two goats and the one goat is sacrificed unto Yahweh and the other goat is brought outside the tabernacle and the priest confesses all the sins of all the Israelites on that goat as he lays his hands on the head of that goat. And then the goat is sent into the wilderness as a kind of a picture of God sending the sins of his people as far as the east is from the west. And so here in this gruesome scene, the Israelites who heard this man lay their hands on the head of him and and it's a kind of picture that now justice will be served. That any perhaps uncleanness that hit the ears and the auditory canals and all the the inner ear bones of each individual are transferred back to this individual and punishment is made so that God can dwell with his people in the camp. Now of course as we look at this we can't help but think that there are There's a pattern here, a pattern, a picture, a shadow that is ultimately seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not the guilty blasphemer, but ironically, when we get to the gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 14, verse 61 to 66, Jesus is on trial And they're bringing all these false accusations and Jesus isn't saying anything. And then the high priest questioning him says to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus answered, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus quoting Daniel chapter 7. And then all of a sudden, tearing his tunic, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him, Jesus, to be deserving of death. 
And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with, and the officers received him with slaps in his face. Jesus, the one who was innocent of, of blasphemy, is condemned as a blasphemer. Andrew Bonar, in his classic commentary on Leviticus, says here we see Jesus bruised, his visage marred more than any man, quoting from Isaiah 53, and his form more than the sons of men, and we therein see the marks of the curse having really fallen on him, the curse which our sins read around him. The Father lays his hand on his holy head as if pointing him out as guilty, but only guilty in our guilt. And every overwhelming curse is showered upon his head. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Never man spake like that man, yet he seems visited with the same marks of tremendous wrath as this son of Shalemeth. The wrath is equally real in both cases, while the reason is very different in either case. The mangled body of the Shalemeth son declared that the wrath due him was poured out, and in exhausting its tears had swept his life away. Even so, the dead body of our surety, Jesus, all bruised and torn, declared to Joseph and Nicodemus as they wrapped him in fine linen and spices that the curse that had fallen and had spent its fury on him. Oh, how they could have sung as they bore his body, his pale body, to the new hewn tomb without the gate. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. My friend, Jesus was taken outside the camp and bore the curse of the judgment that you and I deserve. My friend, have you responded with faith in him? Is he your confidence and your trust to stand before this holy God? The full throttle of God's wrath was poured out on him so that you can be safe from it. To be sure, this provokes fear because my friend, if God did not spare his own son for you and you reject that offer, what, he, what will he do with you for all eternity if you reject that offer of grace? We live in a culture and society that often people will enjoy the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage, living together without a covenant, without a promise, till death do we part. We used to call that 
a common law marriage. The benefits without the commitment. Perhaps there's some common law Christians in this room. You you want the benefits, but you don't want to sign up for the responsibility of responding to this great God with faith and a proper fear. This Jesus who was executed as a blasphemer, bearing the sins of us blasphemers, his name is to be regarded. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in that great Carmen Christi of Philippians chapter 2, he says, Who being in very nature God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him And what did he give him? He gave him a name above all names. So that every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this sobering passage where we see your transcendent holiness put on display. Oh God, grant us a healthy fear of you, a fear that sees that you are holy, you are just. Your name is to be upheld. But also may we draw near to you in the gospel as we see that there is one who has borne our sins that we can stand before you pardoned. We don't have to be brought outside the camp because there is one who has been taken outside the camp on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.